Thank you for setting your podcast dial to 14th and G. I'm your host, Dean Hinkson. The atomic clock at the U.S. Naval Observatory measures time to 10 nanoseconds, providing the most accurate measure in the world. It serves as the basis for GPS. But before the advent of such technology, man measured time by the stars and the phases of the moon to know when to plant and when to harvest. But we here at Melman, Cassignetti, Rosen, and Thomas mark time a different way. We measure it in slide decks. Each quarter, our firm's analysis of the current politics and the impact of business and culture has become a must-read for leaders in Washington. So with the aftermath of election 2020 still playing out, we're going to take a deep dive into this quarter's deck to identify the macro trends and what the voters meant by rendering such a complex and split verdict on the Trump administration, Congress, governors, and on down the ballot. And for that, we need the big cheeses. Our founding partners here at the firm, Republican Bruce Melman and Democrat David Castagnetti to break it all down. Bruce Casto, welcome to 14th and G. Good morning, Dean. How are you? An extraordinary introduction by Dr. Hinkson this time. <laughs> well, the, the analogy was awesome. That was a great. Wow. I figured Bloody, Mary, Bloody Mary's at 9 a.m. I'm loving it. I figured you guys would wonder where in the hell is he going with that. <laughs> no idea whatsoever. Bruce, this quarter's deck focuses on the seminal event of the quarter of the year, really. Uh, obviously, the election. But we lay out the election in the context of super disruptor events. Not only the pandemic, but this era of hyperactivism, the 2020 results down to the precinct level are going to be poured over for decades to come. But what have you gleaned so far? Boy, Dean, uh, that's going to be the topic of the next 30 minutes, I suspect, but a whole lot of different things. First, you're right. It is an era of hyperactivism. People really care. They think not only that things such as elections make a difference, but they think they can make a difference. And that's why you're seeing so many folks asking their employers to engage on social policy issues. It's why you saw the turnout in the midterm elections of 2018 at the highest since 1914. And it's why the turnout in this presidential election was the highest since the year 1900. People are engaged, they're gonna stay engaged, they think things matter, and they think they can make a difference, all of which is often useful tailwinds to get democracy to align the world with where people need it to be. And, and if ever there were a year of misalignment, as you mentioned, you know, what an extraordinarily disruptive year. We've had, this is the 31st presidential election since 1900. In those 31 years, 11 times you had a recession, nine times you had a Supreme Court vacancy, eight times you had sustained mass protests across cities, six times America was at war, twice we were dealing with a pandemic, we had four of those five super disruptors this election and the only other presidential election year at least since, 19, since 1900 that had four, was 1968, the extraordinary year that brought Richard Nixon in. I think just, Dean, if I may just pick up on that, I think two things to point out too about this election. Not only was it, as Bruce highlighted, uh, incredible uh, turnout this cycle, but you know we were very, very worried about voter fraud, <clears throat> voter intimidation during this election. And I think as we look at the deck, you know, Biden's over 75 million votes. Trump is around 72 million as we're sitting here today. People came out to vote, right? There really wasn't that concern that we had initially as we started this election year. 
Yeah, really remarkable on the turnout numbers. Biden's at 78 million and counting. Trump at 72 million and counting. The Trump campaign did their job. They found 11 million more people to vote for Donald Trump in 2020 than voted for him in 2016. But boy, the Biden campaign really juiced the turnout, particularly in metropolitan areas and, and, and those suburban counties. Yeah, and, and especially, Dean, as you look at the map, it, they, they moved the map to Georgia, you know, your home of North Carolina, Arizona, like they're really expanding the, the democratic outreach as well. You know, the only thing I might say about that, guys, is um, you're 100% right, of course, on the numbers. You might argue Donald Trump is what turned out 78 million Americans to vote for Joe Biden, just like Donald Trump is what turned out 72 million Americans to vote for Donald Trump. A huge amount of what Joe Biden was promising was a return to normalcy and a return to competence and a less divisive um, uh, governing style at a time of such epic disruption. And, and I think that was the Democrats' calculation from the, from the primaries, right? They coalesced around Joe Biden because he was, to a better extent than anyone else, uh, more of a generic Democrat. Trump was going to always provide the animation for turnout. And, and, and they just needed someone that wasn't going to rock the boat, in my view. Yeah, I, yeah, I don't I, know if it would be generic as much as moderate. I think it's Joe Biden's long history of being somebody who could collaborate across the aisle, somebody who was not a bomb thrower and somebody who didn't say, I'm going to start a revolution. Yeah, the, the way I, I would take a crack at that is, is I think, on the, as the title of the, the slide deck says, you know, America decided and America's divided. It's very clear America made a decision on kind of the presidency, both Biden's going to win the, the, a majority of voters uh, in the presidential as well as the Electoral College. And they're also very undecided or divided at the same time in the sense of where the House and the Senate ended up. Right. The, the, the thing my takeaway, though, on Biden, I think competency and character were a big deal. I also would say, remember, this man ran for president in 1988. And he finally got elected president today. So those who believe in perseverance and character and competence actually matters. Experience mattered in this race, right? He's a, he, he stayed focused on what it is that he needed to do and ran a very disciplined campaign at the same time. And while I don't disagree, the unity in the Democratic Party was kind of the anti-Trump unity at the end of the day, Biden, for a person who was not necessarily always disciplined, stayed focused on message and on what he needed to do. Well, Casto, to that point, the, some very important things that Biden did not win. He looks to be the first newly elected Democratic president whose party will not control the Senate uh, since Grover Cleveland in 1894. But we've still got two Senate races to be decided in Georgia, but at best for Democrats, they can only tie up the Senate at 50-50. And the biggest surprise of election night has got to be Republican gains in the House. A historic, as we said, 78 million Americans voted for Joe Biden, but he had zero coattails down ballot. What does that say to you? Yeah, well, you and I would probably disagree on the biggest surprise. I would say the biggest surprise were how off the polls were, because the polls kind of started saying, the Democrats are going to win the Senate and they're going to pick up 10 to 12 seats in the House. Right. So I, I, I start from there and then I kind of go into your your next question. Uh, 
you know, the, the, the guy who changed baseball analytics, Billy Bean, has never won a World Series. And Democrats have to stop just relying on the polls, but start focusing on some instincts and organizational skills as well. I, I think that the, the other piece, though, on, as we start to look at the legislating component, you know, it, your point about the Senate is really interesting, right? McConnell, Leader McConnell becomes the focus of where deals need to be cut. We're going to be in a situation where you have to get 60 votes to move legislation. But the first test really will be on Biden's cabinet, right? And kind of as Biden has mentioned, he wants, to, wants it to be diverse. He wants it to be kind of moderate and liberal at the same time. And who does Leader McConnell allow to move forward in that process? And that, to me, is going to be the, the first interesting test to watch, even before we get to the, you know, 113 years of legislative experience that McConnell, Biden, and Mrs. Pelosi have together, right? There's a lot of experience there. There are a lot of folks who know how to cut deals. They're very skilled at cutting deals. And I think that you know, I'm reasonably optimistic that we're still going to see our country move forward and deal with this COVID crisis and the economy that we're living in right now. You know, I might add to that, Dean. I think we may see, for the first time, a Benjamin Button presidency. And what I mean by that is when you think about the last many presidents, it's the first two years when they have historically their most ambitious and most aggressive agendas. So if you think about President Obama, it was the stimulus. It was the Affordable Care Act. It was Dodd-Frank. For George W. Bush, it was No Child Left Behind. It was the tax cuts, the Patriot Act. For Donald Trump, USMCA and uh, the American uh, the Tax Cut and Jobs Act. Um, you saw the same thing with Bill Clinton and a host of legislation because they've always had the Senate at their back. They've often, they almost always had Congress at their back. Joe Biden is the first Democrat to enter the White House without a Democratic Senate since 1884. The Democrats in under uh, Speaker Pelosi are going to have the smallest majority they've had, which is distinct from the 18 Congresses where they were in the minority. But of the 33 Congresses since 1921 where they were in the majority, this is the second smallest majority they've ever had. You got to go back to 1944 to find the last time their majority was so skinny. What that tells me is that Joe Biden enters with a clear but narrow mandate, focus on COVID, COVID, COVID start building in a narrow fashion. His ability to get big in what he wants to accomplish will be based upon his ability to succeed small at first. Well, I was just going to say, I, I think Bruce is right, right? Small ball is going to matter. It was very much, if you go back to Obama 08, it was very much the internal conversation that Rahm Emanuel had, like, let's go for small victories. And, and I think that that is probably where they will start out, but knowing that everything has to be focused on COVID because that's the issue, the biggest issue at hand. I thought Rahm Emanuel was a crisis is a terrible thing to waste. Let's go shoot the moon. No, and because was, of a financial he, he collapse, was, let's go for on, universal health care. On health care, he was much more focused on small ball. Wow. Yeah. I, I haven't read that book. Well, it may be because projections right now have Democrats at a possible 225 seats in the House to Republicans 210. That is, as Bruce noted, a very small majority and pretty much makes the House uh, highly ungovernable. 
it was a raucous first conference meeting for Democrats in the House. Uh, AOC, a Brooklyn progressive, is already throwing shade at fellow Democrat, but far more conservative Senator Joe Manchin. Uh, Speaker Pelosi and Democratic leader Schumer really look to have a tough management job ahead of them, maybe impossible to keep a lid on what's coming. Moderates and progressives wasted no time resuming hostilities after Election Day, Casto. What's this going to look like in the 117th? Well, you know, as in any uh, good family argument, right, we have function and dysfunction that we need to deal with, get, deal with, and not literally on the first call, not only was it kind of AOC saying we didn't go left enough, but Spamberger kind of articulating the position that socialism and defunding the police is not the right message either. That discussion will clearly take place in the party. The party will have to rally around, I believe, are still going to have to rally around some kind of COVID package to keep the pressure on Leader McConnell to do something. Uh, you know, Leader uh, Speaker Pelosi is one of clearly one of the most talented vote getters that there is, that, that there probably ever has been in terms of Speaker and her ability to corral those differences and keep people focused. So I think we'll have to deal with some some COVID issues right up front with the speaker we'll deal with. And on the left, she'll probably kind of deal with some of the John Lewis Voting Rights Act issues as well to kind of keep people together at, at the same time, knowing that that tension and the fight uh, will continue within the, the, the House caucus. The Senate, you know, as, as you mentioned, Manchin has kind of set his stake pretty early on on where he sits. It'll also be interesting, I think, to see how, if Elizabeth Warren or Bernie Sanders is nominated to the cabinet, how they're treated by their colleagues and, and what that means, again, getting through the process. It's also a little bit, Schumer has his own internal politics because he's obviously up for re-election as well. And what does that mean in terms of the way he looks at issues? But that, that tension, as you've laid out, is, is, is going to be difficult to manage. But I, I have complete faith in Pelosi and Schumer's leadership styles to get things done. Bruce, we may not get a concession out of President Trump. It may be a simple declaration of his candidacy for 2024 on the way out the door if uh, state certification of results and, and the formal election of the Electoral College go the way it appears right now. Republicans' civil war may yet resume, but in much different form than it's been for the last decade or so. You're right, Dean, and you raised two, two very different issues. One, uh, the, uh, the truly disappointing likelihood that we're going to have for the first time, certainly in our lifetimes, if not in American history, we're going to have a candidate uh, who won a narrow majority and was welcomed into the role, having succeeded under the rules, try to flip over the, the board and the table and, and you know take his toys and not support a peaceful, prosperous succession. Uh, that's, that's a bummer at a time when the nation really does need uh, greater confidence in the system, greater confidence in the government, greater respect for the rules. Uh, the experts who looked at this said this was the cleanest election they've ever seen. Um, that's number one. Number two, you're right. Regardless of whether the president were to give a, an unexpectedly gracious concession speech and welcome 
the Biden-Harris team in to deal with a whole lot of very difficult problems the nation's facing, the GOP's got a big civil war ahead. And you've got a range of Republicans. You've had a range of Republicans, but as long as Donald Trump was in the White House, uh, the, the, the civil war was, was tamped down. It's coming back with a vengeance. And, and as we put in the slide deck, there seem to be five lanes. There's the most popular governors in the United States who are all Republican in very blue states, Governor Hogan in Maryland, Governor Baker uh, in, uh, in Massachusetts, the governor of Vermont. They are pragmatic. They are socially moderate, fiscally conservative, a, uh, a Republicanism uh, that feels like a throwback, but it's live and well in those states. You've got a bunch of folks like Susan Collins, like Senator Murkowski, like Senator Romney. I, th I put Senator Portman in here who, you know, who are legislators, who have a long history of working with Democrats to solve problems. You've kind of got a wing of, uh, of new, I would call it new Reaganites, people like Marco Rubio and Ben Sass, who are trying to bring a lot of the principled conservatism ideas that were Ronald Reagan's into the 21st century. So how do you marry the future of work with support for free enterprise? Then you have uh, a, fo a, a wing where you'd look at a folks like Senator Hawley, Senator Cotton, maybe Senator Cruz, uh, which is more populist, tough on the border, wary of, of a lot of these trade deals that we've been part of, very aggressively hostile to, the, to a culture they perceive of political correctness, kind of Trumpism without President Trump. And then the fifth wing is, is the lion in winter, you know, Donald Trump, who will probably start his own TV network, who may throw in on a, on a platform to compete against Twitter and Facebook and, and not flag misinformation. He's going to exert a lot of power. Uh, a, one of the great unknowns is whether or not he continues to have the spell over the, uh, you know, the what, one third, one quarter of the Republican base that will allow him to, uh, to uh, recruit candidates and run candidates in primaries against any Republicans who don't keep toe in the line. Um, I personally think that would be tragic for the long-term future of the party, but that's what we're looking at. Well, let's break out the crystal ball. Uh, new governments in the American system, they play out in three stages. The election stage we've just been through, the transition stage of about 78 days between election day and inauguration day that we're in right now, and in the opening stage of the new administration, I put that from inauguration to the August congressional recess, where a new president's capital is the strongest. Short term, long term, what and how much can a Biden, Pelosi, McConnell universe get done? This is where I would start out. I'm relatively optimistic that Biden knows how and when to cut a deal and McConnell will have to play that role as he is also very talented at that. Pelosi's role will be a, a little bit different, I believe, moving forward. Her job will be to corral the troops versus kind of helping cut a, a bigger deal. She will have to be on board with what Biden would like and how he wants to accomplish it. To me, I, I still think that we can kind of get there. We're going to clearly have some bump in the bump in the road in terms of what, again, what McConnell will allow or not allow. That, that to me, is the, the biggest challenge moving forward. Well, Casto, Joe Biden announced this week Ron Klain as his White House chief of staff. Lots of speculation on possible Biden cabinet members. Lael Brainerd at Treasury, one name we've seen floated a lot. What are the big names standing out to you? as we play DC's favorite parlor game. Can I, can I just step back on that too for a second? Sure. And then um, 
I think as you think about Joe Biden, think about his victory speech on Saturday. Think about his place in history for a second. First person to serve with an African-American president. He picks as his uh, vice president a female African-American, Asian-American as well. Pretty changing in terms of the demographics of our country. Huge place in terms of his legacy. The other thing I would think about as he moves forward is his tone on Saturday was very religious, right? He talked about healing. He talked about scripture. Those of us who are Catholic, he talked about eagle's wings. That's one of the foundation hymns within our church, right? So he wants to bring the country together. And I think as you get into the, the parlor game of who's who, that's what this parlor game is going to look like. There'll be diverse people that are included. There'll be male, female uh, folks that will be included. Claim brings a great skill set to Washington, D.C. He's been part of this town for a very long time. He's one of the smartest people I certainly have dealt with through the years uh, of my life, both intellectually and politically. He has a great sense of how to get things done and to maneuver the chess pieces right to get people through the process. I think, as, as, as you mentioned, clearly uh, Brainerd is kind of the, the front runner at Treasury. We've seen, you know, Becerra as a, uh, a potential mention in the attorney uh, general slot. We've seen Elizabeth Warren's name floated for a few positions as well. What, what I would think about as some advice is, I think in the traditional spots, Treasury, State, Defense, they're going to be some very moderate folks that will be put in place. I think where the Democrats will be a little more activist will be Attorney General, the Securities and Exchange Commission, the CFPB, places that are going to have oversight over corporate America. And that's what makes, the, the to me, the Becerra's and the Warren's a little more intriguing is that's where they're gonna, they know how to do play that game and keep pressure on corporate America while signaling with our treasury pick and state and defense that, hey, look at, we're bringing competence and strong character throughout the government. So I think it's a, it's a really unique opportunity here that, that President Biden is gonna have. And he's made some, I think, some solid choices up front with the start with claims. You know, I, I might add, and I'm, I'm, I am also a big Ron Klain fan, very smart, very capable guy. Uh, and given that we're in the midst of a pandemic as the Ebola czar, uh, he's, you know, he has the added benefit of actually having more expertise than most people in the biggest challenge facing the country. But we're going to have a pretty early test. And that is, if you're Team Biden, you've got a lot of pressure from the progressive wing of the party who will say, we brought you energy, we brought you money, we, you know, we brought the Bernie bros on, in line and we needed them all. Uh, and they're right. And at the same time, you're not going to get Elizabeth Warren confirmed as the Treasury Secretary, even if you wanted to. You're not going to get any very progressive candidate confirmed absent having a Senate majority. And we can talk about Georgia, but it doesn't feel like they're going to have a majority in the Senate, which means first, they're going to have to have moderate nominees if they want to have them confirmed. And second, even moderate nominees, you assume during the confirmation process, are going to be asked questions about some more extreme possible policy outcomes. And I could easily see uh, a number of Republicans blocking uh, the, the consideration 
of nominees who they think would move policy through executive branch uh, unilateral action in a direction they don't want to take it. So we always, you know, President Obama famously said, I have a phone, I have a pen, pointing out the, the powers of the executive branch to act unilaterally. But he also had a Senate when he started. So he already had a team in place. And when it was time to say, let's go phone and pen, there were people in seats in jobs. And if you think about it, that's when the confirmation stuff broke down, which caused Harry Reid to blow up the filibuster. We, this is a different movie. Yeah. This time from day one, they're going to have to negotiate. I, I don't disagree with you, Bruce, and, uh, on that, but I, I think even folks like Lindsey Graham have said the president-elect deserves the cabinet that he wants, right? So that's going to be some of the tension that exists. And I get the politics on the kind of the moderate to the left side of this, but, you know, it, it'll be interesting to, to see where the Republicans decide to, to pick that fight, or do they pick that fight and allow, allow Biden to govern, right? McConnell, in his own way, still believes government has a role. He's not necessarily a Donald Trump Republican who believes you should just blow everything up. No, you're, you're absolutely right. And that is the first uh, really essential question in the first 100 days. I think people like Michelle Flournoy, who seems to be the front runner for defense, will get through no problem. My money remains on Leo Brainerd, who's, who's a brilliant economist and been at the Fed and also been at Treasury. And, she was CEA in Clinton. She was treasuring the Obama administration. She'd be a great pick, the first woman ever to be the secretary of the treasury and would get a, a big vote. But, uh, but we're quickly going to run into the battles on the left of are they progressive enough? And on the right, are they too progressive? While you're right, David, a lot of folks are, are, are saying you should be able to pick your, your own cabinet. That's not how Lindsey Graham felt about Merrick Garland when President Obama was picking a Supreme Court justice. And that's not how Democrats felt about Bob Bork or, or, or John Tower. Um, you know, uh, this, this, we've never seen a new president on day one with a hostile Senate who's a Democrat in our lifetimes. And as a Republican, I don't know about you, Casto, but Dean and I don't remember what life was like in 1989. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll leave that for another discussion. <laughs> another discussion, a lot to play out here. In approximately two phases of the moon, we'll be out with another quarterly slide deck, and we'll come back and break it all down. Bruce Melman, David Cassignetti, thanks for being on 14th and G. Thank, Thank you, Dean. You, Dean.